0: we are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmayer. My guest for episode 131 is Ward White. He's been releasing music since 2003. You're now listening to Sabbath from his album The Matador, 2014. We're going to be discussing Leonard at the Audit, the title track from his new album Titans from the previous album 2018's Diminish, and the title track from his first full LP Pulling Out, 2008. We'll conclude by listening to another song off the new album, Bubble and Squeak. For more information, please see wardwhite.net. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or if you want to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little bit of Sabbath from The Matador 2014. That is your
1: fifth or sixth album, something like that? At least, maybe more. Okay. It's an interesting calculus that's required to get the total, and sometimes I lose count.
0: Can we just walk the folks through, you're on something like 10 now, is that right?
1: At least, yes. Okay. There are a couple of EPs in there that maybe you have to combine to count as one. There was a duo record. The count is somewhere between 10 and 12 that have been out circulating in the world.
0: Okay, starting with 2003's Lonely Invalids, but then pulling out 2008 is the first full album. Were you already doing stuff with McGinty and White before that, or that's all right after that?
1: Pulling out predates the McGinty and White project, but that's where I first worked with Joe McGinty. He played on that record, and then we became friends. And So 2009 was the McGinty and White record. So was Ward White
0: is the Matador, the 2014 album that we just played this election, was that kind of the
1: breakout album? It was a a bit of a departure, I think. I had been ramping up to a different kind of record making. I think you can hear a change coming out of some of the earlier records that would probably fit a little more neatly into a singer-songwriter kind of box, even though I never really stayed within those parameters too religiously. This record was more of a, a kind of a writ large Technicolor record. Whereas I had been a little more minimalist in my production, I was gradually adding elements to it. And then this record was kind of the over-the-top, you know, triple track vocals and everything layered and strings and horns and bells and whistles and a 22-minute spoken word piece at the end of it. I mean, it was uh, leaving no bullets in the gun, as they say.
0: And then since then, so 2017 as Constellation, 2018 diminished, and we're going to talk about today, 2020, Leonard at the Audit. So three records in pretty fast succession that all have that, I guess not quite as uniformly produced, but it's still a very big sound, right?
1: Yeah, I've always been somewhere in the middle, you know, as a person who writes lyric-based music, and that's always going to be the focus, but I've always loved big productions. I love the lavish stuff, the, the Burt Bacharach productions. I've always really appreciated orchestration and music, a lot of stuff from Baroque pop, you know, the left bank and all that came out of that. So I've been in a place where I like to draw elements from a really wide range. And I always listen to a wide array of music where I love Dylan and I love the Beatles, but I also love metal and prog and jazz. And and so you try to take a piece of something, at least in as much as it makes sense, to keep a cohesive arrangement. But I also like to push it where I can push it.
0: All right, so let's get specific. Where are you at with Leonard at the Audit? We're going to play the title track from that in a second. Do you want to sort of introduce that project in this song before we hear it?
1: The song is about, in as much as my songs are ever about any one thing, it came from thinking about Leonard Cohen. You know, I'm a gigantic fan, and he was always a person who was a spiritual searcher. And I could always kind of rectify his different choices, you know, becoming a monk and living on Mount Baldy for years and all that. I could see Leonard doing that. But this dalliance that he had with Scientology in the 1960s was one that I, it's difficult for me to picture Leonard Cohen at the Scientology audit. So the the phrase Leonard at the audit came to me. And then thinking about that, it seemed like it it was really more apropos to describe a nebuchadnezzar accountant for some Midwestern sheet metal manufacturing firm who was in trouble for cooking the books. So that is where this idea came together. So it's really two concurrent narratives with the notion that there can be two Leonard's on their way to two different audits. And then there's one moment of confluence even though they never meet, where you hear Leonard is questioning the tie that he's chosen for his suit and looks up and sees the vapor trail of a jet. And on that jet is the other Leonard on his way to his audit, very nervously, not sure how that's going to pan out for him. And so it's just a moment of crossing, two people who will never meet. And yeah, so, you know, it's standard pop song fare. That is a lot more specific than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why they pay me the big bucks.
2: never seen a crowd like this before The pilot washed his hands behind and I do Driving to the airport, remembering the train, desperate for it.
0: So, yeah, the opening of this, what tone are we setting here with this theremin like synth? It's got this mellow, like, I almost thought like the beginning of a soap opera or something like that. What were you thinking here?
1: I was going for a theremin type thing. That's actually a Roland SH 1000, which was the first commercially available synth that Roland ever produced. And it's actually a real sleeper synth. You know, it can be a little wonky, but that's Tyler Chester who played it, who had great control over it. You could see it as a melodrama, for sure. It's setting a tone of mystery because the whole circumstances of this song are sort of mysterious to me. And I think that's true of almost everything that I write. When people ask me, what is this song about? I don't often have a complete answer. Even as I write them, I don't know what they're about. A line will take me into it and I follow it where it goes. And opening it up with, the Nazarene had never seen a crowd like
0: this before, which originally I read as A metaphor. In other words, this is a big crowd, (laughs) bigger than Jesus had. But then I was like, wait, is Jesus actually the focus of the song? I never
1: like to tell people how to listen to it. Be as vague as you want. (laughs) You could see it that way. Often, you know, I write in snippets of dialogue or snippets of prose. It's almost like if you did, you know, a cut up method and took pieces of screenplays, different screenplays and connected them. And it might be from the middle. It might be from the end. It's really never a linear narrative or almost never a linear narrative. And that was just an image that came to me and the line came to me. And I always start with, there's a first line that comes to me and it then dictates where the song is going to go. So yeah, the Nazarene had never seen a crowd like this before. If you wanted to interpret that, you know, I think of Jesus on the cross and he's looking at this crowd and boy, that's not the crowd he's used to see. And he's thinking, maybe this is going to be a tough room. And then you follow it to the next line, which is the pilot washed his hands behind the lavatory door. So now we've got the pilot on the plane washing his hands, but it's pilot also Pontius Pilate washing his hands. So there's, you know, I don't know. I don't write hits.
0: (laughs) It's actually almost a little worse that you sent me the lyrics because then I feel the need when I have a double entendre to actually write that, you know, a homonym to actually write both spellings in the lyrics. Just so
1: I don't know why. (laughs) If I had to do that for every lyric that I wrote down, there would be so many footnotes. And I mean, it would look like a term paper. I heard profits who aren't profits anymore as
0: it's a financial audit, that kind of profits. But clearly that's another one of those.
1: But it's both. It's Leonard Cohen and his lifelong literary fascination with the Old Testament. And then it's also other Leonard on his way to a financial audit. And I'm not sure how could you possibly
0: go clear? I mean, I got the Scientology reference of that, but I didn't then jump back to I had audit of the other sort in my head already.
1: Well, it's both. You have to keep both audits in mind as they were happening concurrently.
0: So the Continental Mesh is just the concurrence of the two things.
1: I wasn't sure what that phrase actually... It could be, possibly. All right. (laughs) Or it could be the name of the metal manufacturing firm. Continental Mesh, manufacturers of fine meshing products. Given those two scenes, then he calmly put the Airbus in the sea.
0: That's all right with me. Who's the me? Is this from the point of view of going back and forth between them? Or is there a third narrator that is looking on this?
1: It's perhaps Leonard who is so desperately afraid of what's going to happen when he gets to this audit that it, maybe it'd be better off if this plane just went into the ocean. Gotcha. Maybe. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to foist that onto anybody. I want to let them hear what they want to hear.
0: That is plenty lyrically to get people to unlock whatever is going to be unlocked for folks. But musically, so yeah, this whole record, it's hard not for me to think of Roxy music just because your voice is very Brian Ferry-ish. On all your stuff? Yeah. <laughs> but this record in particular, maybe it's just because there's a little more fretless bass or the fact that you have chorus on the guitar, you know, that it has that little early 80s feel, the fact that you're... Actually, Rocky Muke never used a, a fake theremin synth like that, <laughs> that I can recall, so it's not quite exact. But yeah, this was a purely built-in-the-studio band that you were putting this arrangement together with?
1: The drummer, Mark Stepro is a guy who I've worked with on and off for about 12 years. He first played with me on Pulling Out, and that's when we were both living in New York. And then he moved out to LA maybe five or six years ago. And then I came out four years ago and called them up. And so we continued working together. So he's been on, I think he's been on four albums of mine now. So I've known him a long time. And then the engineer and bassist is a guy named John Spiker, who Mark introduced me to. And we've done the last two records together. So he records them and mixes them. And he played bass on both of those records as well. And then Tyler Chester, who's the keyboardist, He, I met when I did as Consolation, he actually engineered and mixed that record, but also played keyboards on it. He's a spectacular musician, keyboardist, and bassist. He's a Grammy-nominated producer. He's one of these guys who's so good, it makes your head hurt. But yeah, they were just people who were introductions through Mark primarily, and then we work stuff out. I make demos of everything, and then we go in, we we run them a few times, and, and then build from there. And clearly, as you said,
0: these are written to be interesting enough just lyrically and the chords. And I did want to talk about, you have an interesting chord vocabulary here. Let me play just that Airbus in the Sea part. Do you know the music theory in terms of it sounds like a ninth chord of some sort or something or a 13th, you know, one of those things where you're in your two chord thing and it kind of rises out into one little open jazz thing and then
1: goes back to it. Do you have a more technical description of that? (laughs) I wish I did. I actually don't read or write music. Okay. I know what I'm hearing. I know what I'm playing and I'll play a chord. I might not be able to tell you all the notes that are in it, but it's always very specific. That's something that I've always employed. You know, I I was never a straight CGD kind of guy. And I think that came more from just my interest in, as I said, different kinds of music, you know, listening to progressive music or, or experimental music, classical music. Or even, like I say, more of the Baroque pop stuff, even pop songs of the 60s, like Jimmy Webb. These are incredibly complex and multi-layered compositions, and they have this sort of harmonic adventurousness to them that has always appealed to me. So in my head, one of the great challenges was always, how can I make something that soars melodically enough that it's appealing to people, but... Is tricky enough that it's not falling into any kind of rote pattern that you've heard a million times.
0: And was there a particular path? Like for me, it was XTC to Elvis Costello to Burt Bacharach. And like between those things, then you get all those chords. What was your path?
1: I was listening to a lot of that sort of lush 60s pop stuff Burt Bacharach and Jimmy Webb. Then started listening to quite a bit of Beach Boys, which is something I had not done prior to that point. Kind of came late to the Beach Boys and then dove very deep into that stuff and that was around the time I started trying to write different sorts of chord structures and melodies and what I found so compelling about brian wilson 's and all that beach Boy stuff, even when it was written to be. Popular music of the day, there's really a lot going on in there that's unresolved harmonically. There's a lot of harmonic tension in what he does. And what my takeaway from really the whole Beach Boys canon is that underneath that really large, sunny California exterior and the brightness of the harmonies, there's this undercurrent of dread in everything that Brian wrote. There's always this sadness. And I think it's actually a great metaphor for the whole Southern California experience for a lot of people. They come expecting one very artificial ideal and then find that there's always an undercurrent of darkness. Let's see if we can pick out just
0: another place or two and then we'll go on to the next song. Okay. Let's hit the bridge.
2: And prophets won't prophets anymore Turning off of sunset Memories of J.
0: So it sort of just gets extra dreamy there. Any general comments about kind of how you use bridges? If you're already taking it, Further than normal, even in the verses quarterly, it sounds like you don't have to be extra experimental in the bridge here.
1: I really think the bridge is so often the key to the song. It's, it's often my favorite component of the whole thing. I remember when I first started writing songs and was just sort of carry a verse over and over and over again. And when I first wrote something that sort of approximated a bridge, it was an epiphany because it felt like a key that really unlocked a whole other world in composition you know, I finally recognize that so many of the songs that I love, growing up and being influenced by, you know, so many of the Beatle records, they, they were the masters of the middle eight. And you can see now why. It's that lift. It's that left turn that you can make. You can be on the freeway the whole way. And sometimes if you just get off at an exit, you weren't expecting to, you see amazing things. So I love to take that opportunity to bring in a whole new
0: Palette. In this case, it kind of mellows it out, and that opens it up wonderfully for this guitar solo, which is barely a solo. Right? It's pretty much you're just playing the vocal line with two guitars at the same time, and then you harmonize a little bit at the end.
1: It is actually a variation on the melody. It's not the melody exactly. And it has some syncopated aspects to it that aren't in the vocal melody. But that's a thing I've done quite a bit. I enjoy having a solo element doing that. It's, you know, often you would hear it in orchestral music where, you know, you might bring in a horn section. There's just a power to that, to just really driving home the melody. And it is doubled. That's an old maestro fuzz with a dying nine volt battery in it, which is a sound that I love. That kind <laughs> of stupid, broken, dying battery fuzz. So we double that up and then it does, it moves into the, the harmonized part at the end.
0: And then let me just get you out of the solo. <music> so it almost sounds like it's going to do a full on solo, like you're going to start soaring, but no, 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 just the transition. I mean, that's such an interesting tone that the chorus has altogether because it's kind of like a little funky
1: what is the uh, percussion instrument that goes that my friend is the vibra slap the vibra slap of course one of the most reviled percussion instruments of all time (laughs) and one that has a special place in my heart well one it has the greatest name of any instrument in the history of the world but secondly it was so overused by coked out producers in the disco era that I think it got a very ugly reputation. Personally, there are many records of that era that I think live and die by their viberslap, so I really enjoyed using it there and do the old vibra-slap trick which is you have to vary speed record it so it has more depth it has more weight to it otherwise it's sort of too high-pitched and goes too fast you did restrain
0: yourself this song would have been very ripe for chimes as well the uh <laughs> to like get you out of the mellow sections or something like that so
1: i've used quite a few chimes in my time too
0: <laughs> like it completely makes sense having the light bridge go into that even more dreamy solo, but then to resolve back into this, the chorus is not like a push. It's almost like what would be the bridge in many songs, that it's this little Latin dance thing almost. Uh, Right. (laughs) Jamming electric piano and these repeats, it seems like, can you say a little about your decision to make it repeat quite so many times? Like there's a little bit of jamming on the electric piano and the bass, but it's mostly let's keep this going. We got about, what, four times through the chorus, something.
1: It's just a technique that I liked where it overlaps on itself, you know, rather than resolving the phrase the way it does in the rest of the choruses in the song. You have that overlap and it becomes like this Mobius sort of structure that you can imagine. And that's why it has the long fade on it as well. It's the idea that this could go on forever. Maybe it's just a repeating cycle forever. And that speaks to something about the two overlapping narratives in the song. I love fades. I deliberately put, I think there are like four fade outs on this record, which you don't hear much anymore. And it's like, God damn it, what happened to fades?
0: Yeah, I feel like when I have something circular at the end of a song that I even feel the need to go a little more, like establish that this is a little bit of insanity. Like as it's fading, well, it was easier when you're recording on four track or something. I don't know if you're old enough to go back in the days where I could just turn the knob and it would go chip monkey, very could kind of sail off into the universe.
1: I got my Porter one in the closet. Oh, you do? All right. Oh, yes.
0: Or have it like engulf itself in a wash of reverb or just some other kind of, you know, one of those little prog tricks to...
1: Sure, like when you're using the Roland Space Echo and you just, you turn up the regeneration into feedback and it becomes an endless loop.
0: Yep, or have guitar feedback take over the whole thing. You know, this is pretty restrained. It doesn't go full-on psychedelic, even though it has a lot of those elements latent in there. Seems like it pretty well represents the the style on the whole album, just in terms of that amount of tastefulness combined with you know it lets you be weird you can have bowie like chords and gestures and things but yet still like it's recognizably rock and roll and is not spitting fire or anything like that it's a nice mellow your parents would like it
1: <laughs> yeah well my parents
0: won't but okay. you know, that's all right someone's parents <laughs> someone's parents are in my fan club well, let's get the second song out there. So, Titans, the first song off of the previous album, Diminished from 2018. And I picked this one out originally as a closer because I just felt like it was so catchy. But then as I was listening to it more, like, no, this is not just the catchy thing. Like, this also has a really tight, I mean, it's exactly three minutes long, but it has some progress in it. It has an interesting bridge. It has, it just moves in a way that's kind of parallel to the song we just heard throughout the song. Do you want to say a little about it before we hear it?
1: Yeah, it's actually a pretty weird tune, you know, when you break it down. This is definitely one that I probably couldn't tell you exactly what's going on in it. It's more about what is the overall feel you take away from the combination of images that are offered up in the verses. This is another one that has a bridge that goes to a very different place. And there's some very dramatic narrative that's being explicated there. And then you also have a deliberate kind of harmonic consonance there. There's some almost atonal stuff in the chord voicings. It's meant to be kind of angular and and make you vaguely uncomfortable. But again, it is. It's like barely three minutes. It was meant to be the record opener and kind of be in and out as fast as it could. It's definitely a, a dark song, whatever's going on in it. As is obvious from the first line. Let's let people hear it. Yes.
2: The neighbor's baby died. We don't know their last name. Dead is Stalin, dead is Poe. Where do all dead titans go? This is no time for dreams. The sweat stain on your shirt, the lipstick on your collar, not your shade. The burn that should have hurt. They taped together dollar.
0: Other than the extremely dark lyrics, much darker than would seem to go with that kind of nice 50s chord progression that's starting off with. I like to then reflect back on how the bridge makes you reinterpret the rest of it. Right. It sounds like you're describing horrible things, people dying, and then in verse two, it's by contrast, the sweat stain on your shirt, the lipstick on your collar, just normal stuff, a little bit like the Leonard Cohen part in the previous song. But then saying somehow their lives upended, ours no different, their lives upended, ours the same. That somehow, what, nihilism, the fact that we're all going to die, (laughs) kind of evens out tragedy versus the banal are end up being the same. But then we get this bridge as if, oh, maybe the reason they're the same is because there's a nuclear
1: blast or something. That actually does equalize. Is that... The way you phrased it was good there. I think this may be about how the tragic and the banal actually work hand in hand in our lives. And that's the reality. And that's kind of what I was going with with this song, you know, when in the opening line, you know, it's the neighbor's baby died. We don't know their last name. I think what I'm saying in the chorus, you know, their lives upended, ours no different. It was this idea that You could be across the street from your neighbor, and the most earth-shattering thing could happen to them. Their lives absolutely dismantled, and you, 15 feet away, are eating a grilled cheese sandwich and wondering, you know, what's on TV tonight. To me, that just was an interesting idea, that we can be so close to tragedy without it really affecting us directly. So that's their lives upended, ours no different. Oh, I see.
0: Unchanged as opposed to ours, no different from theirs, also upended. That is a, an ambiguity built into the wording. So I got it wrong.
1: <laughs> there you go. Hey, you're never wrong. However you hear it is right. You hear it how you want to hear it.
0: Well, just the fact that it's sung in that sort of insistent way. I'm just trying to interpret how these moods and the lyrics connect for you. Is it somewhat synchronicity that you've got the lyrics first and then you come up with a chord progression that just sounds cool? And (laughs) how do these things actually fit together in your
1: mind? I always begin the song with an opening line. It's always an opening line that comes to me. Sometimes it's just the words. It's actually fairly often the words and at least the notion of a melody. It's never separate. I never just, you know, write out a poem and then say, all right, I'm gonna try to put this to music, nor do I ever write out a piece of music and say, now I gotta come up with words for this thing. You know, it's usually the the content or the content in as much as I understand it of, you know, the first piece of lyrics that then set the tone for where I think the music's gonna wanna go. They tell me what to do. I never go into it deliberately. I've never sat down with the intention of writing a song. It's something that just happens in this weird moment. I can never predict it, and and I definitely can't engineer it. Then as I start to work on it, I'm already thinking about how I'm going to translate this to tape, always. It's never, I'm writing a song, I always feel like I'm constructing a record. So I think in terms of arrangement, I think in terms of possible instrumentation, and then start to think about how am I going to interpret the vocal. So in this case, this was a deliberately sort of uncomfortable, kind of laconic, almost robotic delivery. The guitars are very stiff and square, and that kind of four on the floor thing that the drums do in the chorus it, it's it's not meant to flow because i don't think there's anything that's happening in the in the lyrical content that would suggest to me that anyone's at ease well the fact that you
0: resolve the verse with this there is no time for dreams which it's kind of like a little mini cadence i could hear a, whipping out a harpsichord for that like you now we're settling back down so it's a, it's a very kind of classical gesture
2: this is my-
0: Just to connect to, again, I said 50s, but it has this growth intention throughout. I guess I associate with Weezer, which is one of my favorite bands that kind of, you know, uses those, probably is the same Beach Boys influences that you're working off of here.
1: I mean, I've always been attracted to that. So for a long time, I might have written songs thinking, well, I'd like to do this, but I don't think I can. I don't think I can. And then you get to the point where you throw away, well, who says I can do whatever I want? It's probably not going to appeal to the largest percentage of listeners, but this is where I want to go. So I kind of got sick at a certain point of of trying to accommodate that. If I want to stop here, if I want to change the time signature in the middle of it, then that's what I'm going to do. If it makes sense to me for the song, then we go through it. So as a result, I've never made a record with a click track. We never use a click because you can't. There are too many time changes in what I do, and I like that push and pull and the ability to stop dead and to ramp up and to pull back, you know, deliberately.
0: Okay, yeah, I was wondering about this. I use a few tempo changes, but then we have to like often just write it into the click track or do some sort of digital connect the pieces after the, I don't know. I've never gotten a method that I'm really comfortable with.
1: What we do is, you know, I will always demo it with all the time changes in it as best as I can represent them. And then, you know, I'll work with Mark and we'll sit and we'll just run them down. We'll run them down a few times, you know, a few hours each time until... We can get transitions that make sense. And then once we can play them together, essentially we'll go into the studio and I'll play it and sing it with him. So it's because the only way you couldn't do it without, you got to make sure the timing's going to work. I have to make sure I'm going to be able to deliver that vocal. So you have to sing it to make sure it works.
0: Let's talk chords again. So the chords going into the chorus is sort of an unexpected place, even at the start of the chorus, but then modulating in the middle of it. Like, is that in your hand
1: first or in your ear first? Let me ask you that way. It's always in my ear. Okay. I hear the stuff that I want to put down, and then what I have to do is go chase it down on the instrument. I always hear these changes. I hear the melody, and then I have to find them rather than having the instrument dictate to me where the song is going to go.
0: Interesting. So it doesn't end up being a compromise? Like, I could see if this was in my head... Okay, it's going to go up, and you can kind of are singing something of the melody, but then the melody sort of always under-determines the chords anyway. So then, you know, wear your hands. Okay, what actually makes sense under what I just did? Oh, okay, so that's the chord progression. But it's always then seems like a totally different thing than I was, you know, merely in my head walking around humming. But you're saying you're actually picturing the chords as well.
1: I'm hearing how the two are going to work together. Mm-hmm. So part of that is just... Years of experience, you know, so I can be at a certain point point say, well, I think I have a pretty good idea of what I'm trying to get at. For instance, I might be putting the song together in my head for a while before I even put my hands on an instrument. So I've got a shape to it, and then I need to go find out exactly what it is I'm hearing, and then I'll rough it out with the instrument to see, okay, I thought I was hearing this, but it actually needs to do this. Well,
0: that seems to go with, you said you don't do chord sheets. Do you use tape, you know, actually recording it on your phone or whatever as the way to capture that? Or is it really in your head?
1: It's usually in my head. I typically don't put anything down until I'm actually making the demo for the record to give to people to learn. I'll keep it in my head. I never write music down. I never write words down either. I mean, all the lyrics I send you, I I do those after the fact because people will sometimes ask for them. That's all stored in my head until it's ready to do the demo, which I like because I think doing it that way, I have a better understanding of the song by the time I get around to actually making the record of it. I know it so well. I never have to bring lead sheets in. You know, when it's time to go work, I just, we set up and we play it and I know where it goes. I never sing from lyric sheets. And I think that frees you up a bit.
0: And you're doing this preparation on your own, right? You said this, again, this is not a band you've you haven't played this out with a band for months before going into the studio.
1: Yes, that's right. I do all the writing and the demoing myself, and then I'll send it out to guys. Let me play just going into the
2: bridge here. The me off my feet, I'm my
0: Can you say something about the structure of that bridge? This, You've got this... What?
1: What are we hearing here? there's a 12 string electric in there and there is also an electric where i have an old like early 80s cheap flanger that is a modulation control if you really just go crazy with the knobs it sends it into this into really really glitchy territory so that was actually being done manually on that flanger to do that crazy kind of wash that you're hearing
0: and then I love how it resolves in this. I always I wrote Steve Hackett guitar sound because that's what I associate with it.
1: That's sort of ringing, slightly overdriven, but uh, from the 12-string. The 12-string really just gives that harp-like, shiny depth to it.
0: Well, and is it that volume? I was talking about the solo that comes after that. Where you're doing volume pedal stuff or is that using the knob on your guitar there
1: that's a volume pedal and that's just run into an overdrive that was really just kind of pinned you know so you get that singing sound it's something that sort of approximating an ebo kind of effect you know i couldn't do it on ebo because it jumps too many strings but uh it's that yeah it's that idea very similar some of the stuff steve hackett's doing in it's not. Uh, it's in for the fifth, where he has that great long solo.
0: Let's just play the just the end here to hear how we actually wrap this up. You've established this big, what is the choir synth there? Is this a digital sample?
1: That's old uh, Chamberlain, which was similar to the Mellotron, a tape-based, motor-driven, proto-sample player. So it has that real wobbly, unstable male voice in there. The end of this song, the way it sort of runs out of gas there on that arpeggio over that uncomfortable chord, that's directly inspired by the end of John Cale's song, Antarctica Starts Here which is the last song on Paris 1919, has a similar, the train is running out of steam and leaves you with this unresolved feeling.
0: Well, and it's nice that you have it right in the lyrics. <laughs>
1: this may not end as we
0: intended at all. And then this it may not end at all. Ends yeah. on a strange chord on an unresolved way. So that's it. All right, well, let's go all the way back for the last song here, pulling out the title track from pulling out your first full LP 2008. Can you say a little about this before we hear it?
1: You know, again, this record is this was 12 years ago now, but it's one that I like. I can't say I've listened to it recently, but I remember being fairly satisfied with the way it worked out structurally, and then I think we really got it on tape the way I was hoping to. Particularly, I enjoyed where the string section comes in in the middle. Yeah, you know, lyrically, this would be a bit different. This is this is a much more direct kind of prose that you have here. And also, it's a, probably a structure of the sort that i don't use quite as often you know this record has a a bit more of twang underneath a lot of it i was playing acoustic for most of the songs on this although there are a lot of other instruments a lot of instruments i love on this song and that was also a time when i really started reaching out to bring in more unusual instrumental voices for instance this has a marxophone on the chorus which i really enjoy which is a quirky old essentially almost was a toy instrument that i guess was introduced around the turn of the century maybe a little later Uh, That you hear a lot. You hear it on creepy soundtracks and stuff. It's that thing that sort of sounds like a vibrating toy tack piano. You know, it's like a combination of a toy piano and a dulcimer. And it has these little vibrating hammers that bounce back and forth to create that tremolo effect on the what are like very high strung little piano strings.
0: Okay, I had written mandolin. I didn't know if it was bazooki or, you know, one of those stringed instruments with a very, you know, gushes a reverb on it, but a marxophone. Okay, gotcha.
2: Tanya has a tattoo of a dove. Mm-hmm. 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 And said she did it at a That's why it's right over our heart. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's better not to start the
0: Yeah, so it's funny that you're combining this marxophone, this purposefully low-fi toy instrument with some lush strings.
3: I have always really loved that aspect of working in the studio is the ability to employ a wide range of instrumentation, often bringing together instruments that would be seemingly disparate or might be incongruent. But I think you can find amazing textures when you bring in old toy instruments or you bring in old wonky vintage synths, like we talked about on Leonard, where you get these sort of wobbles or pitch inconsistencies. You know, that's the beauty of the Mellotron or the Chamberlain. It gives a kind of otherworldly quality to things. And then why not throw them in? With drum kit, throw them in with a string section, I think there really aren't any rules as far as what can be employed where, and certainly where people subscribe to the idea that there are rules, those are people, I I think, who tend to make pretty boring records.
0: Well, as you pointed out, this is a little more normal structurally and has that backbeat, has a, I guess that marketing-wise, that seems like that's a good hook for you, that, you know, it's saying he's a new Brian Ferry or David Sylvian or something is maybe not as saleable as something in the genre of Wilco. In other words, that it's got the backbeat, it's got some psychedelic elements, and this when you actually mentioned, Fleetwood Mac, and like, oh yeah, that's actually sort of what the feel of this is.
3: You know, again, the Fleetwood Mac reference, which you wouldn't know going into this, but you know, song begins with the line, Tanya has a tattoo of a dove, and that was the person who actually did have a tattoo of a dove, as mentioned in the song, but what isn't spoken is that that was a Stevie Nicks-inspired tattoo, so that's why Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham get mentioned later in the song and then we bring it all back again to really put a put a button on that with you know going to the guitar solo with the line would you stay if she promised you heaven which is of course from
0: Rihanna. and it's hard for me now I don't know having heard more about the spousal abuse and things that was involved to sort of see this as a you got to choose they're just aesthetically differing but equal options here I wouldn't read
3: too much into the line. You know, I was just making a reference, you know, the idea of having to make choices in life. And that was a good example, you know, that pairing or any other combative pairing in the arts or in life. There's always going to be people on one team or the other. You know, which side are you on?
0: So still in this, even though it's a more normal song, let's just play a little of the bridge here. Yeah, can you say even just about that transition? It's a pretty interesting kind of longer transition than I might expect.
3: It is interesting, and I think what you really take away from it when you're listening is that not just about the harmonic shift, but there's a real deliberate pullback in the tempo there. That was done deliberately to sort of shift you. It's like pushing the brakes down on a car and like, whoa, getting pulled back into the seat. It really pulls you back like you're winding up a drum roll into slingshotting it off into the next thing it was just an interesting technique to use you know rather than this feeling that everything has to be on the straight four four you know you can create so much drama when you give some fluidity to your timing you know so much drama available in that i think people don't use it all that often but it's just like setting you up to then pop into the next line
0: do you ever play live with a full very loud band (laughs) or is it always solo It's been both over the years.
3: It becomes difficult, you know, and as my writing changed and the arrangements became a little more baroque, it became more of a challenge to really reproduce this stuff on stage. So, that is something that I've always had to think about. It's like, yeah, I want to have six part harmony on this and I want to quadruple track the guitars and I want to have these intertwining counter melody lines, but we need like 20 people to play this. And so, you have to kind of scale back when you're going to do it live and just kind of come up with a hybrid aspect where you kind cover some of the parts, but obviously you're not going to be able to do everything. But then I also play solo, you know, that can be really interesting experiences. take these big blown out productions and then how do I just break them down to one voice and one guitar? So often that has to be a kind of reimagining of the whole song and the whole tenor of the thing to be able to really pull it
0: off. Like I noticed on both this and Titans, even more so on Titans, the drums are not blasting through. They're sitting nicely low in the mix, like a Bob Dylan song, putting these kind of things together. So you can really hear everything else. And that's kind of what I was wondering, that you can do these natural breath-like gestures like you're doing going into that bridge, especially solo. But then when you have a live drummer next to you, the difference between him playing and not playing is huge. Like, you can barely stand next to it, unless you have a drummer that's playing with blastics or brushes or whatever, you know, willing to do a semi-acoustic setup. So it just seems like it's a less subtle mechanism than you're used to be having control over in a studio.
3: It can be, but that always comes down to the ability of the musician. And you learn this very early on, particularly if singers learn it, that the most important piece when you're doing this is you got to have the right drummer. Because even a great drummer who doesn't have control over the dynamics and the way you need them to is gonna blow you off the stage. So a really great player who has this intuitive sense to understand where they need to be placing their dynamics in order to allow more complicated or subtle things to happen, but also to allow space for a singer, that's a rare animal and you're very lucky if you can find one. But it is more difficult, yes, particularly that there's so much of the singing that I do on these songs has a very wide dynamic range and sometimes there's things that have to be sung very softly, uh, otherwise you lose the whole feel of the thing it's a bit of a balancing act and live that can be tricky. Yeah.
0: And have you had like a female backing vocal in these bands? Cause you know, you sing so high as it is and the harmonies are even higher. I don't know. It seems like it'd be a hard position to fill by just having the drummer fill it in or the bass player. <laughs>
3: If you're lucky, you can get somebody who can do the harmonies. You know, John Spiker is actually a great singer as well, and he can sing high harmonies. But yes, in the past, I have had female vocalists to come in for live stuff. And you're absolutely right. It's often easier to find a female voice that can cover the high stuff.
0: But sometimes you luck out, and sometimes you don't even try. It's
3: just better to leave certain things alone.
0: So a really nice string arrangement on this. What was the financial situation even at this point? You know, it's five years after your initial EP... But clearly, this is a full on production. Like, what had happened? Did you get signed?
3: Nope. I have always paid out of pocket for every record I've made. I worked uh, day jobs in New York. I worked very long hours at, you know, kind of corporatey jobs so I could pay the rent and make records. So that's where all the money went. I never went on vacation because anytime I took whatever, you know, little bit of time they'd give you off, I would schedule studio time. That particular record was made on my vacation so I could go in for consecutive days. The strings on that, ranger and player on that is my great friend Claudia Chopek, who is an amazing talent. She's a violinist and violist and, and arranger, and she's done all the
0: strings on my records. So that makes sense, having one good person that you are friends with that can do that, just like most other instruments. But, you know, this really sounds, this arrangement, like you pulled in the studio quartet or whatever.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, the thing to remember is that all the people on this record, you know, these are all world-class players. You know, Mark, even then when he was young, he'd been playing with Ben Queller for years, and that's Catherine Popper on bass, who's in the Cardinals, and played Jack White and everybody else, and plays with Puss in Boots and Nora Jones. And uh, that's Joe McGinty playing keyboards, and the guy who recorded it, Ken Rich, is an amazing producer and engineer, has a studio called Grand Street in Brooklyn. There's a lot of talent going into this, and Claudia's again, amazing. She's toured with Moby for years and been on a million records, and the Broadway shows as the concert master. So it helps to have a talent pool like that that you can tap into. And especially in New York, people are also working a lot on kind of a hybrid of salary and favors. You know, you have to help each other out. And musicians in that world tend to be pretty good about that. They understand that if there's no label budget, they know this is coming out of pocket. So they try to do what they can.
0: So are you supplementing this with doing guitar work on other people's albums or singing harmonies or are you returning the favors? Particularly in
3: New York, there always was a community of kind of like-minded people who gravitate around, you know, maybe it's one particular venue or it's one person who is kind of the spark that connects 10 other people. And you just get to know, you go to each other's shows and people will say, hey, I know what you do. Can you help me out on this? So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I'll come sing on your show, will sing on your record, I owe you. And I think for the most part, people, when they have the time to do it, are, are pretty happy to do that.
0: So how have things changed for you in terms of Funding this, getting the word out. I mean, I know you had that. What year was the Mark Mothersbaugh thing? That Tell the audience about that. I'll link to it, but.
3: Oh, you know, it was a podcast that we did. This was 2019. It was only maybe six or seven months ago, maybe eight months now. A podcast called Launch Left, which is a series that's run by Rain Phoenix of the Hollywood Phoenix clan. And she had a concept that she would bring in these iconic artists and then ask those artists to pick an artist that they liked that was lesser known and spotlight them. So we went over to Mutato, which is Mark's studio on on Sunset Boulevard, and we did a sort of four-way interview there where we talked about records and whatever else we did, and uh, I'd play a song at the end of it. So I played Cowboy, which is from Diminish. so just an acoustic version of that.
0: So has that opened a lot of doors for you, or is it just, oh, it's internet, it's a wash of noise, it's really hard to get the word out on about anything?
3: You know, it's funny that that pretty much describes almost any human endeavor at this point. (laughs) It's the internet. It's such a wash. No, you can't get people to pay attention to anything. It's almost impossible. Where you can say, yeah, it has impact, but you, I think you also have to be realistic at this point. There's very little that's going to really set the world on fire immediately, but that's also a lesson in doing this long term. You know, when you're young and you're getting started, you think, I'm going to do this and I just need to get one or two people to hear it and they're just going to realize how great it is. Then it's fat city from there. And then you learn over time that no, it's never one or two people. It's, It's these little incremental growth spurts, but we're not doing it. For that. You know, you, it's nice to have, and obviously, you want to have an audience, but ultimately, you, you don't do something for decades where you're breaking your back and breaking the bank and getting very little back from it, certainly in financial compensation. So, you know, I do it now because I don't know how to stop doing it. It's just what I do.
0: I mean, I think it was a gradual thing where I started, you know, how can I do this sustainably? How can we? Because you have so much energy when you're starting off and feel like this is the time where I'm going to make it or I'm not going to make it. And so you do things. There's just no way I would go out and put flyers on cars or something like that. Now, like that's a young person's thing. Sure. Now that you have like, as you advance and you get more, the actually ability to deliver on these opportunities in a way that you couldn't when you were 19, but yet don't have less energy than you had when you were 19. Kind of want the young person to be my promo person right now.
3: And that's always a balancing act, too, is an artist who has to promote themselves. And there are certain people who were born with the self-promotion gene. And God bless those people, because I don't know how they do what they do. To me, it's beyond pulling teeth to have to promote what I do. And not to say that I don't understand why or that I'm above it. It's that I'm simply not very good at it. And to other people, it is second nature.
0: Well, you did a fine job in this format. This is a weird format, though. So (laughs) thanks. Thanks for joining me here. Well, thank you so much, Mark. So we're going to leave folks with Bubble and Squeak, the opening track, again from the new album Leonard at the Audit 2020. Do you want to just say a couple words to send us off about this tune for folks here at...
3: You know, it is not a song about a bizarre English breakfast food. Using that term was really just, I liked uh, the cadence of it. This one, I couldn't tell you if you put a gun to my head what this song is about. So I'm not even going to try. So just enjoy the imagery and, uh, I don't know, buy some records.
0: All right. Yes. Look up Ward White, not White Ward. That is a different thing.
3: That's correct. That is a, a Lithuanian black metal band,
0: I believe. That's not your alter ego. <laughs>
3: no, I've, I, but I have had some very confused internet interactions based on that. Some Spotify people, some Facebook people who were very disappointed.
0: Here we go. <laughs>
2: While the run, and you can tell the former congressman that now's the time to get scared. The gun he gave me was untraceable.
0: Thanks so much to Ward. We had a few network issues there, eventually switched over to phone, but a very thoughtful songwriter, exactly the kind of person I want to talk to on this podcast. Remember, you can learn more by going to wardwhite.net. My next episode will be with famed trumpeter, John Hassel. To make sure you hear that, please subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or looking up Nakedly Examined Music at your favorite podcast service. I could also use a rating and review to help spread the word about the show. And, of course, I would appreciate any support you might be able to spare at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I've been taking a little break from recording new episodes, trying to let my backlog get released. I do have one lined up with a guy named Mark Bingham, who's a New Orleans producer. Been involved with a lot of cool stuff. Keep safe, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Bunsenmeyer signing off.